Welcome to Video Store. I am Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1990 film The Freshman. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? I'm doing great, Sam. Uh, Barrett, this was a, a, a kind of a change of pace movie. I, I feel bad for the movie to sort of say that it's like a, a palate cleanser or something like mm-hmm. that, but it it kind of was. It was it was nice to watch something that was um, lighter and funnier um, than. You know, we've been watching a lot of movies with some pretty kind of heavy themes about, you know, competing views of America and violence and all of these things. And um, this movie plays with a lot of those, with, with some of those ideas, or at least some of the uh, iconography of those things. But uh, you can tell from the jump that this movie is not uh, not trying to be some of those other things. Exactly. And I, I like to note that it's, that it's playful because one of the things I, one of the ways in which I think the movie really works is that Marlon Brando plays Carmine straight. Yes. You know, so and, and as you know, you know, comedy is often made possible by the straight man and he doesn't do a parody of Vito. He does. He does Vito. Yeah. Yeah. And, and but but he also does him unselfconsciously. So it's like, you know, the people around him see the resemblance and you're not supposed to point it out. And so I just think that that is one of the reasons why the why the movie works. It's like he's taking this role completely seriously as though there was no Godfather, but he is also playing the Godfather. And that just that that sets the right tone. Well, and that's interesting because um, uh, Andrew Bergman, when he went to pitch this to Brando, I'm sure you read this story as well. Like they, they met for days and talked and, and Brando's big take was, I don't think I can do this without putting Don Corleone in it. And he said, well, let's just make it that this is the guy it's based on. And and Brando's like, I can work with that. And it's like, that's, that is a, that's a brilliant writer idea to be like, okay, we have a, an obstacle. So Mm -hmm. let's actually make the obstacle. One of the best ideas in the movie, you know, is this, this notion that this is the person that that character was based on, which explains why, you know, but yeah. So, so I, I really love that. Um, Let's, let's, let's just start off with um, this is a movie that is now 30, roughly 32 years old. Um, what is your history with this film? Did you see this in the early 90s? No, I, I saw it sometime afterwards. I can't remember exactly what brought it to my attention because it's not, it's not the kind of film I necessarily gravitate towards. I guess I, it just must have been, you know, there was a list of good comedy or something like that. I, I did discover, I, I don't remember seeing this at the time, but I did discover the uh, original Ebert, uh, Cisco and Ebert Review from 1990. Um, and as, uh, as did many other critics, they really liked the film a lot. Um, it didn't do really, really well at the box office. Um, may have been hard to market in a way. Maybe not enough people remembered The Godfather. Maybe too many people remembered The Godfather, didn't want to see it parodied. But um, yeah, so I became aware of it some, somewhere along the line, watched it on video. Yeah. So, I mean, this would have been, this would have come out the year after Godfather 3, because that was 89, I think, right? Yeah. So, so I mean, obviously... Uh, Brando's not in that, but um, but but The Godfather would have been back in people's consciousness at least a little bit um, with The Godfather three previously. I think I probably did see this in ninety one or ninety two, so I was thirteen when this movie came out, um, and there were only three things I remembered about it. So when you said this is what we were watching next, the three things I remembered is that I remember um, that Brando was in it, and I remember not knowing who he was at the time, but knowing people were saying, oh, it's a big deal that he's in a movie um, just because he didn't didn't work a lot at this point. 
Um, and then I remember Matthew Broderick being in it because for me, that was the draw, you know, cause this is within, you know, four or five years of Ferris Bueller. So, so Broderick was like, Oh yeah, that's like a, you know, a, a, a young star that I was aware of. And then the other thing I remember is that there was a lizard in it. In my mind, it was a small iguana and it turns out it's actually a much larger, uh, more endangered lizard. Um, now what I also thought as I was watching this, and this maybe speaks to something that I think the movie does well in my memory, this was a movie that was predominantly about the lizard. And I thought, Oh, okay. So, so, so it's sort of a misdirect, like at least in my head that it's like, Oh, like it's about that, but that's actually not that big. It's, it's central to it, but the, but it's not, this is not a movie about lizard hijinks, <laughs> which, which, which it, it, it tells you for a moment. It might be because the movie sets up to feel that way where it's like, okay, mm-hmm. they're going to get this. And then when it escapes and they go start going through the mall, I thought, Oh, is this going to be the rest of the movie is them trying to chase this down. And I thought, I'm not really interested in that. And then they resolve that right away. And I'm like, mm-hmm. that actually was really well done because there, there are plenty of movies at the time mm-hmm. that would have been that, that it would have been, this is just this chase movie of um, these mm-hmm. two, these two young college students trying to chase this lizard throughout uh, New Jersey. And it's like, not, that's not a movie I'm interested in. And it turns out this movie wasn't interested in that either. It's interested in a much, much more interesting ideas. <laughs> Well, I'm glad that you said that, Sam, because you actually put your finger on something I was feeling at the time, but I didn't quite know how to articulate it because I didn't remember the movie well enough to remember what they ended up doing with the lizard. So you're right. It was that mall scene. I was thinking, oh, no, it's going to be one of those. The lizard's going to disappear and we're going to spend the rest of the movie trying to find the lizard and trying to explain to uh, Carmine why they don't have the lizard. Yeah, I'm really glad they went a, a different direction. I want to back up for just a second because you're exactly right. Really, when this movie came out, Roderick was the big name, much more so than Brando in a sense. Uh, he'd been in a string of films, as you mentioned, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. He had just been in Glory. Uh, in 89, gotten really good reviews uh, for that. But the other thing I want to point out, which you also alluded to, is it's really interesting that Brando made two career comebacks, and both times they involved um, The Godfather. So when he made The Godfather in 74, his career had really been um, in the toilet for about for more than a decade. Um, and then he sort of semi-retired from acting after 1980, uh, after I think it was after A Dry White, White Season, or maybe there was one other film after that. But anyway, he hadn't been on screen, as you observed, for, for eight, or, eight or nine years. So it's really interesting that his comeback is twice with this particular character. Um, the other thing that I found interesting about this movie, and this is maybe before we get into uh, specifics about the movie, is uh, the character of Andrew Bergman, um, was fascinating to read about him. Now, I didn't, I couldn't find, I didn't read a lot about him. Uh, but what jumped out at me is before he is a screenwriter, before he's a director, before he's any of these things, he is a PhD in American history from the University of Wisconsin, which is a great <laughs> history program. Um, so I was like, that's not the pedigree, I think, for most, uh, <laughs> most filmmakers or screenwriters. Um, now his, 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 uh, dissertation is on, uh, as on film so so there's definitely like like film studies crossovers he's written wrote a couple books about he wrote a book about james cagney and wrote a book about the his dissertation was on like depression era films mm. um so so he's definitely a, a film scholar but then like in 74 he is one of the writers on blazing saddles <laughs> yeah. um which again like just that those two facts are such a weird disconnect to me um do you know any more about him because he doesn't make a, i mean he writes 
quite a bit, but doesn't. Yeah, doesn't yeah. He also writes the the In Laws, which is another one of those kind of seventies uh, comedies. But yeah, that's uh, you. You dug a little deeper than I did, Sam. That's more than I knew about him. So yeah, no, you're right. So he, yeah, he's kind of a combination of writer director. I think he only directed about three or four, three or four films. But um, he had his. I mean, he had his hand in some really good comedies, though. You know, he may not have done a lot, but what he did was pretty high quality. Now, because he is uh, this, you know, historian and film historian, what I loved about this movie and something that I didn't remember um, is that there, there, there's a trope, you know, we're, we're getting close to the Oscars and there's a trope that what Hollywood loves is movies about making movies. Mm-hmm. And this is not exactly a movie about making movies, but it's a movie that is deeply aware of the fact that movies exist. Yes. Um, there are so many things, um, you know, kind of. Uh, uh, references to movies, and and again, we, we already talked about the uh, the you know Brando playing the character that that um, uh, that Vito Corleone was based on. Um, what I like about this is there is sometimes <laughs> um, this gets referenced a lot on 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 uh, some of the podcasts that I listen to, like weird things in movies where people sort of think about like is the in the world of this movie, do other movies exist? So I'll give you, I'll give you a very strange example. Um, in the movie, the dark Knight, there is a, a moment where Heath Ledger's Joker says to Batman, you complete me, which leads people to think, has the Joker seen Jerry Maguire? Like, is there, is there part of the world mm-hmm. of that movie where that character sat and watched mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a Tom Cruise, Renee Zellweger rom-com, <laughs> you know, cause he's, cause he's, he's referencing it, but it seems strange. Like this is a movie where, you assume all of these characters, all these characters have actually seen these things. You know, part of it is making Broderick not only a college student, but a, um, a film school student. So right. you get to have, you get to have these, these moments where you go into Paul Benedict's class and they're actually like talking about film or watching films, things like that. But um, what were things that jumped out to you in terms of this as a movie that's sort of aware of movies? Well, you know, in Fleber's office, uh, you have the big poster of Brian De Palma on, on the wall behind uh, behind Matthew Broderick. And of course, um, very significantly and strategically, they're watching clips from Godfather 2, not Godfather 1. Uh, and of course, Bruno Kirby uh, is in Godfather 2. So there's that, there's that connection there uh, as well. Um, so at least th- those, those are a couple. I mean, I just love the fact that he's analyzing Godfather 2 while Matthew Broderick is interacting with the actor from, God- from Godfather 2. So I just, I, I, yeah, th- those were a couple of really big ones that stood out for me. Well, and, 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 and then there are all these like little moments from the broader Godfather universe that work their yeah. way into this, but not in obvious ways. So, for example, when um, Carmine is talking to, um, to Clark about marrying Tina, he starts to talk about what a wedding would look like. Yes. He's like, and of course you have the senators and the judges and, and it's like, <laughs> Oh, you're describing the opening scene of the Godfather. Yes, exactly. so, so like, so, so instead of showing it, it's like, yeah, we all know this is there. So, and you know, I think part of this is that this movie from, from its inception assumes an, that you're watching this because you want to see Brando playing a Vito Corleone again. So like, it's assuming you know this stuff, so they don't have to overdo it to have these little moments. I mean, there's also a um, a moment. It's kind of in the middle of the film where uh, before before Clark takes the the job when he first goes to Carmine's house and he's talking with Tina. Before he leaves, it's like he stops her and looks her in the eyes and he's like, 
tell me he's just an importer. And it's sort of like Kay at the end of Godfather just saying like, yes, like yes. just tell me. And she, I can't tell whether she lies or not because this movie's confusing enough in its, <laughs> its, its, its plot machinations that it's like, maybe she lies to him. Maybe he is just an importer. I don't actually know. And it's, I kind of love, I kind of love that. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. Maybe that's what she thinks. Who knows? But okay. So, but my, my favorite probably cinematic reference comes at the, at the, at the very end of the film. I think it's the last line, right? When, when uh, Brando turns to the lizard and said, you could have been a handbag. <laughs> um, and of course that's Brando's great line from on the waterfront. You know, I could have been a contender. Um, I, I have to believe that Brando, ad limbed out or threw it in or I don't yeah. know, maybe Bergman wrote it for him but I just thought that was kind of the ultimate homage to to Brando's career for him to get to say that to the wizard well and you you know okay again and, and this is an, an overstatement as a movie reference but there is also this moment where as I think about that last shot they're walking away from the camera and it's like it's sort of the end of Casablanca right you have these two characters who have been through all of this and I don't know if this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship or not, but it's, but it's sort of a similar set, setup where it's like these, these two characters who've been part of this bigger complex story are now walking away together, away from the camera as their dialogue continues. You know? Yeah. And, and the fact that this is subtly done to me is one of the pleasures of the film, Sam, because I think for, you know, for a, a light comedy, you don't normally see what I would consider rather subtle touches like that. Uh, and so to me, that's one of the reasons why it stands above most other kind of light comedies, because it really does bear some closer examination for those those tropes and, re and references. Um, I also I, I mentioned that that th this movie has a lot of um, misdirects built into it. And I, I love that it opens with one again, because I'm not remembering the story at all. The opening scene, you see um, Clark and his and his stepfather in the forest and it everything about that scene tells you that they're hunting mm -hmm. he's dressed in camouflage he has a rifle <laughs> and you're like okay so this so he's here with his father-in-law he you can tell by the way it's set up by the way clark is dressed by the way he's talking that it's like clark disagrees with his stepfather but the assumption is he disagrees because his stepfather is a hunter and clark is somehow opposed to that and then you realize it's actually the opposite is that this, they're, they're hunting hunters. They're trying to chase away hunters. And this is, he's actually a radical animal rights activist. So within the first little bit, you get, um, you get a misdirect and that tells you like, okay, everything you encounter, like don't quite believe what, you, what you're being told by anyone or what you think, you know, what you see. I, I actually think that's a great way to start this movie. And I'm also going to use that as an excuse, Sam, to talk about a couple of other elements of, of the film, because that opening scene is such a different setting from where the rest of the movie occurs. You know, then you get the shift from, well, from wherever he comes from, right? He might come from Vermont, he might come from Nebraska, Connecticut, and Montana. Um, but the cinematographer for this film is, is William Fraker. Um, he was actually nominated for five Oscars, including um, War Games which of course was one of Matthew Broderick's first films. Uh, and he also worked, uh, he wasn't the main DP, but he worked on Cuckoo, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So there's a connection to some of our earlier watching. And I'm really fascinated by the fact that the production designer of all people is Ken Adam. Uh, so Ken Adam won Oscars for Barry Lyndon and Madness of King George. And he was most significantly for me, he was the production designer for Dr. Strangelove. Um, so there's some really, I mean, that's another reason why I think this film is a, is a good little film, because you've got some really 
pretty highly talented people who've worked on some really major motion pictures, you know, working on, on this film as well. Um, one of the other things in terms of thinking about this as a film that um, is aware of film, and again, tell me I'm wrong, because I probably am, but I also, maybe this is just you and I have been talking so much about film noir, is like there are elements of this that it's like it uses pieces of that. So like if, if I think about when I ask you, okay, describe what a film noir has, Things that you that you often say it has voiceover. Well, this movie has some voiceover <laughs> to it, right? Which is also a reference to the fact that Broderick's most iconic role is Ferris Bueller, where he addresses the camera and does voiceover. Right? But it has it has voiceover. Um, it has a character getting pulled into an underworld, a character who's maybe outside of it getting pulled into an underworld. It has a plot that's very confusing, keeps changing. It's full of like <laughs> double and triple crosses. Um, you know, you, you have Tina who like at least sets up as a potential femme fatale, like, like she, she sort of reads that way. And then you even get this moment in Fleber's office when um, Clark is trying to explain what's happening. And Fleber is like, it's a setup for a pretty good noir. Like, like he even yes, says yes. it there and it's like, okay. Like when he said that, I thought, wow, I wasn't really thinking that, but you know, and again, maybe that's another misdirect thing is like everything about this says this is going to be a movie that's like The Godfather. It's like, but it's not, but it's about all, it's like all these other things too. Um, because it actually like, there are moments of this that remind me very lightly structurally of a movie like The Big Lebowski, which is another character who gets pulled into a world and keeps encountering people and encountering kind of strange characters. And you're not quite sure what exactly is happening and 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 then they keep getting pulled into this 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 sort of weirder world um so so and and the lebowski lebowski also has like some light noir elements in terms of some of that stuff too so i don't know if that's an overstatement but that's definitely something i felt watching this well i'm, I'm really sam that's great that you said that because one of the other cinematic references that i had i didn't mention is not only does fleber say noir but he specifically mentions kiss me deadly which is one of my favorite noirs from 1955. Have you, I don't know if you've seen Kiss Me Deadly. I but have not. Okay, the whole premise of Kiss Me Deadly is there is this, there is this uh, briefcase full of a mysterious substance. It's called the Great What's-It. And the briefcase um, it plays the same role in Kiss Me Deadly, now that I think about it, that the lizard plays in this film. So that's, so that's more than just kind of an off-the-cuff uh, comment. I think actually, and and I love Kiss Me Deadly as a, but it, it's it's not a noir in terms of um, it's not a noir that has a lot of noir lighting. So right. you know, so when you were talking about this having noir elements, you know, I wanted to come back and say, yeah, but it's it's so brightly lit most of the time, except of course for the for uh, the, the club. But actually, Kiss Me Deadly. Now that I think about it, is a pretty well lit noir, and let it, and yet it is unmistakably a, a noir. And it's it's uh, it has the Mike, Ham and it's it's basically a detective story. Mike Hammer is the detective in, in the film. So yeah, I think that I, I wouldn't want to classify this as a noir, but I would agree with you that it has a lot of those kind of noirish elements. The other really obvious thing that I should have said when we were talking about cinematic references is. Bergman's own film, The In-Laws, right, which is about these people who come to New York, these, these uh, um, tourists, and they go through this completely nightmarish 
classic kind of experience of, uh, I, 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 so I'm sorry, it's not that, it's, it's the out-of-towners, that's what I'm thinking of, the out-of-towners. They come into New York and they have this terrible disorienting experience. And Bergman sets all that up with the opening, opening song, right? New York, New York, big city of dreams and everything in New York ain't always what it seems. You might get fooled if you come from out of town. Uh, so I think that's one more kind of cinematic reference he's making. Yeah, and, and in terms of what I was saying about noir, I mean, I think you're exactly right. Like, I think this is a movie that's aware of noir tropes. Yeah, it's not yeah, a noir, exactly. but it's like, yeah, we can play with those things yeah. too, and we can, we can, we can push, we can use some of that stuff um, <clears throat> as well. Uh, I had a couple other, um, a couple other Godfather things. Uh, some of these I think I already talked about, but I want to see if there's anything else. Oh, I do, I loved at the. At the, at the again another kind of like the wedding with the godfather when they're at the gourmet club and um uh victor gives him the italian passport <laughs> i mean it's it's this idea of like maybe you gotta maybe you have to go off to italy or to sicily for a yeah. while and again like it they don't have to overdo it to be like this is you know so so there is this and the whole thing has this sense of like because it's intercut with a few godfather two scenes like even the like the kiss on the mouth that that he gets from Brando, and then we cut to the classroom scene where you see Michael do that to Fredo mm-hmm. in Godfather Two, and it's like, you know, you think about the idea that that Vito Corleone is based on Sabatini, and then you say like, well, is this art imitating life or life imitating art? Is because I also assume that if not Vic, or excuse me, if not um, Carmine Sabatini everybody else in his world has seen the Godfather. So like, are they doing Godfather stuff? Like in the same way, the mafia like picked up things from the Godfather. Like, are they doing Godfather stuff or is the Godfather doing their stuff? (laughs) And you don't know, like there is just this, like, what is, what is, what is real? (laughs) That's right. And of course I, I, but I also love the contrast, right? Because it's the kiss of death and the Godfather, but sells him the kiss of all kisses. He says, you're in for life. (laughs) Right, right, right. Yeah, so it's like there's a fluidity in meaning. There's symbols, but yeah, those symbols can mean uh, can mean different things. Another thing that jumped out at me watching this, and I mean, almost from the first frame, uh, was the David Newman score for this movie, mm-hmm. um, which is very, very kind of late '80s, early '90s score. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I was trying to think of. Did it remind you of any other school? Like it, it, there, there, there were a couple things that jumped out at me. Like I kept thinking about um, like Danny Elfman's score for Pee Wee's Big Adventure or something like mm-hmm. that. Like there is just this like, uh, and it's not, it, it happened. I mean, it's especially during the, the mall scene, which is kind of this, mm-hmm. you know, manic scene of running around the mall and it's a goofy scene, but that music is not only in that part of the movie. There's lots of other points in the movie where you're getting this like, uh, again, I, what, what just feels like this, the kind of score I would expect in, in a, a late eighties, early nineties, particular kind of movie. I actually, I'm not, I don't have a good vocabulary to describe. I know you, obviously you saw the movie, you know, the, this music I'm, I'm thinking of, but I can't, I can't quite describe it, but it's, it's uh very of a time. And it also, um, sets the tone for this movie, because mm-hmm. I mean, if you had played, you know, music like you have like 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 sweeping strings or things like this or the thing kind of music you have in the godfather would have a very different feel this movie is telling you something with this david newman score i think 
And I, and, I, and I think that also points to, again, why the film works, and that is because it doesn't follow any single formula. You've got these many different elements. And so there are ways in which it kind of transcends its time, but then there are ways that you're pointing out where it's very much of its time. But, but I would say that I was, I was surprised, especially for a comedy from the 90s, that it, it stood up as well as it did, even if the score is kind of a marker of that particular period. I mean, it's kind of impossible to make a film that's timeless, right? I mean, it's always going to have some element of its time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm not saying that as a negative. I'm just saying, no, like, no, oh, it, it, it kind of brings you back. Well, and, and I do want to say, you know, as a, uh, a film from the 90s, or really, let's call this a late 80s film, yeah, it, okay. it feels <laughs> like that, right? Um, I think about some of the movies that I loved from the 80s, some of the comedies I loved from the 80s, and they're very painful to go back and watch. Mm. You know, I think part of that is um, a lot of those come out of a kind of sketch comedy background where things don't fit together. I think part of it is cocaine. I think there, I think there's just, there's a lot of things that where it's like, I think about a movie like uh, that. I loved as a kid, like ghostbusters. And I've watched that somewhat recently and thought this isn't like, this doesn't entirely make sense to me. This isn't great. And so I, I was kind of uh, preparing myself for this to have some tedium to it, which, um, it didn't. I, I, I don't really don't think. And, and even when it faints towards that, like we said at the mall scene, it's almost a joke to say, you think it's going to be this, but we're going to resolve this. And all of a sudden the lizard's back in the car and they deliver it. Well, I, I, I want to put it in one more comedy context for both the 80s and uh, for a longer tradition. And that is, um, this is a particular kind of screwball comedy that... Uh, I think it's I think its predecessors in the 80s are um, Martin Scorsese's After Hours uh, with Griffin Dunn and then um, Jonathan Demme's Something Wild with Jeff Daniels. Uh, but I'm going to go farther back and bring up your favorite movie. <laughs> I was just thinking about this. You know, you know, I'm going to say, right, it's bringing up baby. So in all of those movies, we have a um, we have uh, an otherwise apparently competent man drawn into um, a series of circumstances over which he increasingly loses control and a woman is uh, a key part of this. And there's a line that uh, Matthew Broderick says that just made me think completely about each of those three films, especially Cary Grant and Bringing Up Baby. He says, I stopped thinking 24 hours ago, I'm going on pure instinct. <laughs> And, and she says to him, that's what you're supposed to do in New York. Uh, I mean, to me, that's the essence of what happens when the guy gets caught up in the screwball world. It's like, after a while, nothing makes any sense. You're just in this for the ride. And I think that Bergman is putting his film firmly in that kind of tradition. Yeah, no, that's great. And, and, and all that is to say, Barrett, I think I'll just say this on air. Um, at some point in this run, we should revisit bringing up baby. We should, we should do another episode on it. Um, cause I, cause I, cause the, the more we like go through things and talk about it, I feel like I should go back and watch that again and, and revisit it and maybe with a different set of eyes. So at some point, maybe that will be an appropriate thing uh, for us. Well, to I just, I just got a friend just gave me the new, there's a criterion edition of bringing up baby, which I just got, and I haven't had an excuse to rewatch it. So, uh, <laughs> Oh, it's also oh. got a documentary about Howard Hawks that I'm eager to see. Um, the other, the other part to this movie that uh, that we haven't talked about yet is the uh, the whole notion of the gourmet club. Mm. Um, as you know, where I mean, this is absolutely something I didn't remember. Like, like I said, I remembered the uh, the Komodo dragon. I did not remember that this was a plot about people who want to eat endangered species. Um, and 
so so there is there is both the great uh john polito scene um mm-hmm. where he's explaining it um and it that just sounds like this crazy idea and then you end up actually getting to go to the um go to the club which is a, a an entry into a strange little world that i almost feel like like it has these great moments of strangeness but it's like that could have been even stranger for me and i would have been open to that like there there was a moment where when we got to the gourmet club that i sort of was like i wish uh bergman had said uh david lynch why don't you direct all of the scenes at the gourmet club just make it weird because because there are there are weird moments like when when um when Burt Park starts singing Maggie's Farm, <laughs> I thought to myself, like, oh, this is like tiptoeing towards like a weird Lynchian thing. And it's yeah, like, I just yeah. wish they would have gone all the way with that. That would have been that would have been great. Well, 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 and that. Yes. So he had him singing Maggie's Farm. Like, what in the world are we doing with Maggie's Farm? And then, of course, you know, Burt Parks, the host of Miss America, you know, so there, there he is. So singing to the Komodo dragon and then i think the other element this this kind of lynchian is that whole larry london character um of oh, course yeah. maximilian shell was kind of the christoph waltz of the of the 70s and, and and 80s you know if you needed a guy if you needed a guy to be a german character or a german character pretending to be somebody else maximilian shell was your was your guy and i just love the fact that his you know his pseudonym is is larry london uh when he's so obviously not 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 a brit but you're right there's i mean there's even something about the um there's even something about the set design of 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 the club that has a very a very lynchian feel to it it seems like it's a whole different world and it's a really interesting contrast to the cornfield um, outside, I'm also glad you mentioned John Polito. He's a wonderful, he's a wonderful character actor. You know, he was in like five Coen Brother films, and he's just kind of the, he's kind of the perfect guy because you look at him and you think, you know, this guy he plays so many shady characters. You can't believe he's a Fed to begin with, and so the fact that he's a crooked one just fits perfectly. Yeah, yeah. And, okay, more movie reference things. Um, Maximilian Shell. I also felt like there was an element of. Um, Peter Sellers, Doctor Strangelove, yes. in in him too, where yeah. it was like, who is this guy? And then he breaks into song, and it's just like, <laughs> I do. The only thing you know is you do not trust this man. Like that's that's the only thing you know for sure. Um, but yeah, no, I, I like he he struck me as a character out of Twin Peaks or something yes. like that. Yeah. You know, um, and and even okay, you know, to to think about you know, part of the Lynchian thing, even think about setting the gourmet club up in a cornfield, right? Yeah. Cornfield is the most middle America benign thing. And then in the middle of it, you have this pop-up restaurant for the ultra wealthy where they eat endangered species. And um, yeah, like, I, again, I, I just think that was sort of a bananas thing that I didn't see coming. And I assume in the, uh, in the, the advertisement for this, there was nothing to prepare you for that. No, I would assume, no. you know, which is, which is kind of great. And, and uh, you know, I, like I said, I, I just think that was, and, and by the time you get to that point in the movie too, you're so confused by the plot. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're not sure you've had the scene with, with, with Polito, but you're not sure like, is that really what's happening? And yeah. then you, and then you see when they wheel the dragon out on the ice, you're like, Oh, that is in fact what's happening. And then you realize later that is not what's happening. That's not what's happening. That's yeah, that's right. You know, like and like with many noirs, it's like, can you explain the end of this movie to me? Like, there's a lot that happens where it's like, I think I get it, but 
it's very confusing and it and it's also like the plot probably doesn't hold up if you think too hard about it because it seems utterly improbable yeah because I, I i you know i'm kind of left thinking so so wait a minute carmine was a good guy all along so but he, he still never, imported a so he never really was serving so the gourmet club was was always a scam um and of course you know one of the things i love about the gourmet club is it's such a satire of that particular class of people right you know they don't know what they're eating you tell them it's a komodo dragon and charge them 350 a plate but they have no idea what they're but it's turkey <laughs> virginia turkey so, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I, I'm glad I wasn't the only one kind of confused by the end because I'm like, well, so Carmine is a reformed character. He used to serve endangered species. Now he doesn't. I, you know, I, I, I don't think that the film gives you a, it's a little bit like the big sleep. I'm, I'm not sure the film gives you enough to go on to come to a decision. I'm not sure the film itself knows exactly what the answer is. All it knows is it wants Carmine to be a good guy at the end and it manages to pull that off. And also, also I, I, you know, and it's, and it's great that, you know, you suspect as you're watching that there's, that we're being hoodwinked, um, but you're not, you're not entirely convinced, right? You're still a little is, you know, is this, how much of this is performance? How much is this actually happening? So I kind of like that touch as well. Well, and it, and it starts with um, one of the people who's I, one of my favorite uh, performances in this movie is, is Bruno Kirby. I think he's amazing in this. And when you first encounter him, you're like, well, clearly this guy's trying to scam him. And then, and then you're proved right mm-hmm. really quickly. And then he's like, when, then when, when, when um, Clark gets to his apartment, when he tracks him down, and he offers him this job. You're like, there's no way this is a real job. And then it's like, oh, in fact, it's a real job that actually pays really good money. And it's like, so he did actually. So it, so it, it gets confusing. Like, I don't know what to make of this person. There's also the, the great comedy of, of um, Victor translating everything, <laughs> even to the point where like when he says grazie, he says, that means thank you. He's like, I know, <laughs> you know, it's, 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 and, and then clearly he's translating some things. Just, he's just making stuff up. Like the, the guy behind the counter says two words. And then Victor says this very long sentence about how he appreciates the one. It's just like, it's great. I, I, I think his, his performance is, is, you know, is, is great. And every time he shows up in the movie, I get excited yeah, uh, yeah. because it's like, okay, this is going to be fun. He's, he's kind of going all the way with this. So I, yeah. I, uh, he was, he's one of the, the performances that really stand out to me. And I forgot about him. He was so omnipresent throughout the eighties and into the nineties. Uh, he died relatively young, but he was re- really good. Um, are there other performances in this movie that are like that, that, that stand out to you? Cause I actually feel like this is a movie with a really fun cast. It's got a great um, cast. Yeah. So, you know, you already mentioned uh, Paul Benedict playing Arthur Fleer. Paul Benedict is one of my favorite character actors. Um, I, I mean, he's been in a lot of things, but I really love him in one of my favorite uh, Christopher um, uh, guest guest films, The Waiting for Goffman. He's just wonderful in that. The other one I want to point out, which I confess I didn't realize until I looked at the, the cast, is um, Frank Whaley, who plays Steve Bushak, the, um, the roommate. We, of course, met him as Archie Graham in Field of Dreams. Uh, and once I, I guess it's the way his hair was or something like that. I just didn't, didn't place him at all. But I, I think, I think he, he's, he's great as the, as the kind of the, the sidekick. I, I really enjoyed him. And Penelope, yeah. Penelope Ann Miller is, is, is wonderful as Tina too. 
yeah, she, she's an actress who I wasn't particularly familiar with. And I, I, yeah, I thought she was, she jumps off the screen too. I think whenever right. she's in it, I have to say, I am a huge Frank Whaley fan. If that's possible to be that he's also, you know, one of the kids at the beginning of Pulp Fiction oh, plays Brett in Pulp Fiction. Yeah. He has a very small part in school of rock. Like he's, he's not, he never, he, he's in Hoffa. He's like, like he, he always just shows up in movies. And the first thing I always think when I see him is Archie Graham and then you know <laughs> playing somebody else. But I, actually thought that 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 steve boucher character was i really liked him and i it kind of makes me sad that he kind of disappears out of the movie yeah um because i because i was enjoying him i have to say my favorite character in this movie and this is such a small character um and he, he has great interplay with um with uh steve is uh leo or big leo at the uh <laughs> at the airport uh oh yeah yeah that yeah. guy was Every every word that that person said was funny. Um, his name is uh, Tex Koenig, uh, but just the idea of like you know he says I'm Big Leo, and uh, and uh, Clark says well it just says here Leo and he says we are the same and then Frank uh, Frank Whaley says you mean you're synonymous. Yes. <laughs> And just everything about him is and like when he starts like listing all of the uh, the Komodo dragon facts and stuff. And it's just like I could watch that scene over and over. And I just yeah, I just want to know more about uh, more about Big Leo. He's I, I could spend more time with him. I really it's just this great this great small little thing that when you get to the end of the movie, you kind of forget about that character. Yeah, he's yeah, just yeah. Briefly, but great writing and a really great performance. Uh, anything else you want to talk about with this movie? Yeah, I want to talk about, well, first of all, I want to talk about a theme and then I want to talk about a couple of lines uh, that I really love. So the theme, there's actually a very serious thematic uh, element in this film that we haven't touched on. And it kind of explains why the opening of the, of the film is important. And that is Matthew Broderick's dead father and a completely inadequate stepfather. And the fact that Carmine becomes his surrogate father. And, and Carmine, you know, so Carmine says that he's like the son I've never had, which is, you know, kind of another very typical Godfather line. Um, but he actually kind of means that. And, and to me, one of the really poignant moments in the film is when they're sitting in the dorm room talking about reading Curious George. And that's another thing to me that really distinguishes this, this movie is that for all of its silliness, it's actually got kind of a heart. And, and there is a genuine relationship between, uh, between Matthew Brock's character and, uh, and, and Brando's. So it really is about a father finding a son and a son finding a father. So I, I really like that because it, it, really, it, it really is tight. Every, you know, there really, it really isn't extraneous that you have the, the stepfather kind of subplot. Well, yeah, and, and, oh, sorry. Can I can I just yeah, jump on? Yeah. I mean, when you get to that scene at the end, and the the stepfather feels betrayed, mm. you know, and 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 the, the word he said, the word that Clark says is loyalty, right? And it's like yeah. this is this whole thing is like it's like he he is actually choosing his family there, and it's not a choice you were expecting him to make. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's yeah, and, and it kind of reverses the Godfather in the sense that it's a happy ending choosing choosing that family. Okay, so this is a couple of great lines I love in this film, and and one this gets back to the kind of um, the screwball uh, uh, quality. At one point, Clark says, "There's kind of a freedom in being completely screwed because you know things can't get any worse." Um, and then I just Carmine has so many great lines. So the, the one I really enjoy is uh, they look at the he sees the picture of Mussolini, right? It's a little, a little disturbed about that, you know. 
for sentiment, Carmine says, for the old days, for good or for bad. It would be like for you, a picture of the Beatles. <laughs> and then, and then, then when he says, they are there before my time. <laughs> and then he says, yeah, right. He says, every word I say is by definition a promise. <laughs> That's a fantastic line. And then, and then he looks around the door and he says, so this is college. I didn't miss nothing. <laughs> okay. And one, one other, as we're just pointing out sort of great, great moments, it's, it's, it's a strange, and maybe this, this could be potentially Lynchian because it's so weird is what is Carmine doing ice skating? What, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> and that, that there are all these kids waiting to ice skate and they all have to sit there and watch Carmine <laughs> skate. It's just like, yeah, it, and, it, and it's, it, and they don't say anything about it. It just happens. And then no, they move on from there. No. And, it, and it's, and it's not like Brando had any, I mean, he, it, there was a skating coach for Brando. So it's not like Brando had it. And you can see he's, so somebody, I think it was Ebert says it's like an elephant on ice, but there's a kind of awkward grace to yeah. him on, on the skates. And there's a kind of sweet, you know, vulnerability to it as, as well. So it's like, so this is how we celebrate our Godfather. We put him out on the ice and let him have a let him have a skate. Well, and and what's what's cool about the way they shot that was it is it is in a wide enough shot where it's like it, it's close enough where it's like that is clearly Marlon Brando, but it's a wide enough shot where it's like he is in fact ice skating and um and it so so I mean if they had ever at once on the ice cut to his face you would have been like well maybe that's not him so instead in that wide shot you're looking at it and you I was watching it so closely to be like is that really him is that and it's like that is in fact him out there yeah. <laughs> well I think uh, I think the appropriate closing line for this film is at one point I I can't remember who said this I just wrote it down without humor what do we have <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Uh, I have to point out one other thing just because it is uh, it is the month of March, which is this is not a I assume not an intentional thing, but it's so strange that uh, Matthew Broderick's character's name is Clark Kellogg. Mm-hmm. Uh, Clark Kellogg is, you know, played basketball at Ohio State, played for the Indiana Pacers and is like one of the, the main studio commentators for March Madness for the last 20, 25 <laughs> years. So every time he would say Clark Kellogg, I just thought <laughs> it's weird that that's a famous person's name. I mean, clearly that's not intentional. I'm sure. Uh, Andrew Bergman's not like a Indiana Pacers fan because, but it's just, it just is so it's, it's always weird when a name shows up in a movie or in a book and it's like, mm. Oh, that name means something else to me. And I, I could never get over like, mm. it, well, what's funny is the first time he says it when he's talking to Frank Whaley, he said he gets halfway through his first name and he says, I'm Clark. Kent. Kent. And I thought he was going to say Kent. And then later on, uh, Carmine calls him Kent and I was wondering was that a uh, mm-hmm. was that a Brando flub that they just sort of roll with because Bruno Kirby jumps in and says it's Clark it's Clark um, but I thought that was so it was very strange because mm-hmm. I had this this sense of like you know Clark Kent from Kansas you know and they keep <laughs> saying he's from Kansas or something like that yeah coming yeah. to you know coming to the big city or something so uh, yeah no like the, something there's something going on with that name that that, that I thought was interesting <laughs> Uh, so, Barrett, uh, what do you have for us next week? Well, as you said, Sam, this was kind of a palate cleanser because I want to jump back into the crime genre and go back to kind of the granddaddy of gangster films and watch Howard Hawks' Scarface from 1932. Um, I went back a while ago and I watched uh, Scarface and Public Enemy and Little Caesar uh, and all on the same weekend. And uh, I think Scarface stands up best of, of, of those 
those three kind of uh, seminal uh, gangster films. Fantastic. I'm, this is a movie that I am uh, very aware of because it gets referenced a lot when you uh, read about crime films and you read about kind of, because uh, that's pre-code, right? Yeah, yeah, it's right yeah. on the co- it's right yeah. on the cost. Yeah, yeah. Because because when you read about the code, that's also something that gets referenced uh, sometimes too. So um, so I'm very excited to watch this. I've never seen it. Um, so that yeah, that's going to be great. Barrett, thank you so much for for recommending the freshman. I got to say, this is a movie I would not have gone back and watched, uh, <laughs> and I had a great time watching it. And I had a great time having this conversation. This was very fun. Uh, feels a little different than some of our other conversations, and I've really yep. enjoyed that. So thank you for recommending this. That's all the time that we have, but we will be back next week to talk about Scarface in the video store. Mm-hmm.